Welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. What does the word disruptive mean to you? It means going beyond the ordinary, going beyond the status quo. Not thinking in the conventional way, not just sort of following the herd. Disruptive means taking things up, you know? Disruptive entrepreneur is somebody who sees the problem and embraces the problem mm. with a new way. Shake up and awakening. Quality will take care of itself and you'll go from being disruptive but also profitable. When you use your reservoir of talent, when you love what you do, then you disrupt. Mix it up, change it up and dominate. And now, your host, eight times best-selling author and double world record holder, Rob Moore. Hi, it's Rob Moore here and welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. Very excited about this interview. There's probably about 10 years worth of story and history that's leading up to this interview. Uh, And I won't give the game away because we actually talk about it when we go into the live episode. You're about to hear an interview where I went to the house of Matthew Syed. And um, Matthew's got an amazing CV. So table tennis champion. And he explains how and uh, why and uh, reverse engineers some of that success. A prolific uh, best-selling author, written four books, which is prolific, but the amount that he sold is even more prolific. And Bounce had a huge impact on me, as you'll hear. Black Box Thinking's got over 3,000 reviews on Audible. It's one of the top non-fiction success personal development books in the UK, maybe the world. He got a first at Oxford University. He's an amazing researcher. He's been a sports journalist. He's been writing for The Times since 1999, and now he does three article editorials a week. What can Matthew Syed not do? Well, anyway, I don't want it to be a long interview. Let's get straight in. Uh, A great interview with Matthew Syed. Matthew, thank you for doing the podcast. You might not know this, but there's quite a lot of history that's led to this podcast, um, because I read your book, Bounce, pretty much when it came out. And it was kind of synchronous for me uh, because at the time I was thinking about uh, raising my first son. Uh, And I think something in my life I've always held a little bit of regret on is that I got quite good at quite a lot of things. And I'm not saying this to brag because (laughs) I was very good at nothing. I never got great at one single thing. Good at a few things, great at nothing. Um, And so I never really pushed forward in anything. And I wanted to raise my son a different way. I wanted him to be able to be great at something. I feel like society rewards greatness, whether it's money or recognition or, Mm -hmm. you know, media or I don't know, just a feeling that you're you're contributing to society. Um, And just at that time, I I read Bounce and I thought, you know what, your experiment with your life and ping pong, I'm going to do that, table tennis. I'm going to do that with my son. And um, when he turned five, he became... There's no rankings in golf at the age of five, but I look at all the scores. I was obsessed by it all. And by the scores, he became the best five-year-old golfer in the world. Wow, that's um, incredible. Yeah, well, and you're a, a part of that because of, <laughs> you know, like I always felt like I didn't feel like I had the permission to do that because I felt like society would judge me to you're pushing your child, you know, you're one of those trophy parents. And I felt like your book gave me the permission to have fun, to experiment, and to just see where it goes. Yeah. Uh, and of course, people always ask me with my son, you know, was he talented? He must have been born, popped out of his mum, smashed a 300-yard drive, which of course never happens. Um, so should we start the talk just talking about uh, your experience mm. of talent versus hard work versus, you know, yeah. perfect practice and let's just have a chat. Well, look, first of all, thanks very much for the kind words about Bounce. That's, that's wonderful to hear. And I think there are a lot of really interesting issues around early specialization 
and the extent to that, that relationship between a parent or a mentor and a particularly a young person who is becoming very uh, excellent at a particular activity. And perhaps we can explore that in mm. some detail. Yeah, I might uh, need my, some therapy on yeah, it. Well, no, I, think, I mean, I think there are great things that can happen, but I think there are some risks mm. as well yeah, that yeah. are worth thinking about, and I'm sure you mm. have experience yeah. of these. Um, so my background, I uh, grew up in suburban Reading. Um, my parents were, well, I was going to say pretty ordinary. It's an unusual story. <laughs> my dad is a immigrant from Pakistan, uh, met my mother, decided to stay here. And we were bought a table tennis table randomly in the late 1970s. You know, my dad wasn't interested in table tennis. My mum wasn't sporty at all. Uh, but we put it in the garage and me and my brother, my older brother started dueling on this table. And by the time we went to the table tennis club at primary school, because we'd got this hidden practice that no one really knew about, we looked super talented. We weren't talented, weren't mm. that talented. You know, when we started, we were useless. Mm. But we kind of enjoyed the, the competition and the spins and the, the sort of nuances of table tennis. And so we were amongst the best in the school. And we happened to have a brilliant coach who taught at the school who also ran a club that was open 24 hours a day, just a building with just table tennis. So you didn't have to book, you just turned up and we had a set of keys. So we got all this additional practice with a wonderful coach. And the really weird thing was that sort of early 1980s, this one street that we lived on that was in the catchment area of the school had something like half the top young players in Britain. Mm. And it wasn't genetic. It wasn't that we had some special substance in the water. <laughs> It was the power of a culture which combined great leadership and the opportunity to clock up passionate, purposeful practice. And I suppose in a lot of the writing that I've done from then until now, it's to try and deconstruct the notion of success as a journey mm. and to try and examine the features, the conditions that enable individuals, teams, organisations to take that journey to the summit of their potential. Mm. So something really interesting you said, because they used to say, didn't they, that practice equals perfect. And you just said, and I think it was you chose your word specifically, passionate, purposeful practice. So, so should we talk about the difference between the two? Yeah, I, absolutely crucial. Mm. Um, and it's probably worth saying, that I don't think genetic, uh, genetics are irrelevant, that talent doesn't matter at all. I just think it's vastly overrated mm. and can have quite important implications. But to look at the notion of practice, you know, a lot of practice is trial and error learning. You try something, it doesn't work, your backhand misses, so you adapt your technique. Mm. We're constantly learning as human beings in this world. And um, in sport, that trial and error learning it is really important that when one does it, one is doing it because one enjoys it. One feels what's sometimes called intrinsically motivated to do that activity. You're not doing it because you're being forced to do it. That's sometimes the danger mm. when you have a particularly young person doing a particular sport. They may be doing it not because they internally endorse the sport, that they love it, but they're saying, Dad, Mum, take me to the table tennis or the golf or the snooker or the violin. But it's more the parent who is saying, you have to do it because yeah. I want you to succeed. Now, in those circumstances, what typically happens is the child will do it, but not with passion, with some small level of resentment. They may not articulate it, but it's nevertheless there. 
And that means that the practice isn't really as powerful as it might be. The real danger, however, is burnout. You know, burnout is where you get three, four, five, ten years into an activity and you just can't take it anymore. Hmm. And I think that's because it isn't intrinsic. It isn't something that they internally endorse. And I think that is quite an important thing. You know, if you're doing something a lot, you need to love it. Mm. that's not to say that you know even when you love something you go through little periods don't you you've got yeah. a defeat yeah. or you lost to somebody you get a bit angry and you can sometimes sort of say to yourself you know i'm not practicing this week or i don't feel like it i think in those circumstances if the parent who often understands the child really well knows that they truly love it mm. they just go i think a little push there a bit of encouragement yeah that can be a positive mm. but if it's constantly push 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 then I think that can be quite dangerous. And I think that's, that's, that kind of practice isn't powerful practice. Mm. I think that you've made a really good point there because I think a lot of people feel like, hey, you know, you should only do what you love. And, you know, if you want to go into a vocation or a vacation, you've got to have full passion about it. But I think sometimes they're a bit naive that no matter what you do, there's challenges. Right. And, you know, I, I think what I did was I love this. And then when it got hard, yeah. I don't love this anymore. Now, I actually still loved it, yeah. but I wasn't loving it in the moment. And then I gave up. And if I'd have had a mentor or someone saying, hey, look, you actually do love cricket, which mm. I did. Mm. You actually do love golf, which I did. You actually do love art. You're just going through a hard time. Yeah. And I really try and balance and sometimes get it wrong with my son. You know, is he, is he losing the passion for the sport or is he just having a hard time, which I need to get him through? That, that I think is is fundamental, and there's there's a huge amount of evidence in the psychological literature that it's how we interpret challenges, setbacks, difficulties, failures. Mm. It is incredibly easy to interpret that as meaning, well, I'm obviously rubbish. This isn't for me. Mm. This is a horrible thing to be doing, and therefore to give up when one actually loves what one might love it. Mm. If one interprets those things as, as opportunities to learn more, as um, not as meaning that you are basically flawed as an individual, but this could be a staging post to learning something much more deeply about oneself, I don't think the passion is corroded in that mm. sense. That's what I meant earlier on when I talked about success as a journey. Yeah. If you see it as a journey, you see these setbacks as part and parcel of the journey. And that's why I think talking to young people about how success really happens, you know, the great examples, in fact, any example of a successful person, the basic arc of what has happened is generally the same. We see as consumers, as observers, as spectators, the performance. We see David Beckham knocking a free kick into the net from 30 yards. It doesn't seem like a journey. It just seems like a detonation of genius. Mm. The guy's a natural. Look how fluent and coordinated he is. We could never do that. Yeah. Or we see James Dyson's dual cyclone vacuum cleaner and think, what a clever device. Dyson must be a creative genius. Or if we see any piece of technology, we only see the final product. But what don't we see? We don't see Beckham as a boy in his back garden only able to do three keep-me-ups as a six-year-old, but practicing, making mistakes, losing football matches, but dusting himself down, learning the lessons, practicing mm. with passion. It was a long, long period. He had some huge setbacks even for the England team. He was sent off. Mm. He was vilified by the nation. He came through it. It's a journey. Mm. You know, Dyson went through 5,126 failed prototypes. Every single failure, he's learning more. 
about separation efficiency, airflow dynamics. Didn't see it as a reason to give up. He saw it as, wow, we're learning so much more about what really matters when it comes to creating this machine. Mm. Um, and I think young people who see success as a journey navigate their way through life, through education, through sport, through their occupation in a t totally different way. Mm. They don't try and avoid difficult experiences. They embrace them. They see them as learning opportunities. If they have a setback, they don't think, oh, my God, I'm going to give up. They say, I wonder if somebody could help me with that so I can learn faster and better. Mm. This sort of interpretation, I think, is very important in the construction of success. Mm. It's almost like there's a, a macro passion and you endure micro difficulties along the way. And I got confused between the two because sometimes in the things that I've done, I just thought I've fallen out of love with this. Mm. But I hadn't. And this is something like, because obviously part of this conversation is about, you know, my son as an example, but I think it's also about how we talk to ourselves because often we can be our own worst mentor and coach, can't we, internally. Yeah. And I struggle is probably the wrong word. I wrestle with at what points do I look at what's happening with my son and myself and go, this is a great lesson because it's a struggle and it's difficult. And But then when does it border into this is so hard that it, you could lose the overall passion? How do you know how to differentiate between momentary struggle in a journey of success in something you love and just so hard that it could end up breaking your passion for the thing? Depends what you mean. What, what would be an example of a particularly hard thing that okay, might so, break passion? Um, maybe you had really expecta really high expectations to win uh, you know, a, a tournament when you were playing table tennis. Um, you thought, thought you were going to walk it uh, and you didn't and you lost and it was embarrassing. And you, know, you had those thoughts of like, I'm over this. Um, and then, you know, how does someone guide you along to knowing that that's just a momentary blip rather than, you know, you're chucking the bat away? Well, I mean, it's worth probably saying that occasionally in life, it is worth walking away from a particular activity. I mean, it would be wrong to say that one should always persevere because sometimes a particular activity may not be right for a person. Um, the interesting thing, though, is that I think if you have this conception of success as a journey, you have what's sometimes called a growth mindset, you just see this in a very clear way. Mm. I mean, a, a slightly technical way to think about it is um, people who buy stocks for a living. It's a very clear incentive structure. You need to buy a stock, let it go up in value, sell the stock and crystallize the gain. But traders who are in a fixed mindset, who are quite fixed in their thinking, if a stock goes down in value they find it very difficult to sell. Because if they do, it's unequivocal evidence that they were wrong to buy the stock. Mm. Do you know what I mean? It's mm. a threat to ego. So they hold it desperately, hoping it will rebound. Traders in a growth mindset can just see the mistake for what it was, and then they can cut their losses quicker. Mm. So in other words, I think life is about being adaptive. Most of the time, it's about learning the lessons, growing, and persevering in an activity. Every now and again, it's, you know what, this isn't right for me. I'm going to walk away. Yeah. But we make, I think, more rational decisions about what we need to do in the light of difficulties when we were in that positive growth-orientated mindset. Mm. And uh, so on the specific case of your son, I think it all, all depends on context. Yeah. Is he loving the golf? Mm. Is it something that's enhancing his life? At the moment, he's loving the golf. Right. And at the moment, it's enhancing his life. But we've had moments where maybe he wasn't loving it so much. Yeah, well... Uh, I think it's probably worth saying that the difficulty is in the context. Mm. And that's where the 
parent or mentor, son or daughter relationship is really important. Really understanding where he's at. Mm. Is this something that over the long term is going to enhance his life? Mm. Is it something he can combine with his education? Are there other things he would like to do that are being compromised by the golf? Mm. Is that core passion there? Understanding the difference between a temporary difficulty and something that indicates that really at a globe, at the macro level, mm. this isn't right. I think you really need to have a good understanding of who he is mm. and where he's going. Mm. Okay, so something I think I disagree with in the world um, is this notion of, uh, you know, it doesn't really matter about winning and competing, it's just about taking part, and that seems to have proliferated through into schools. And it reminds me of one of Jack Nicholas's quotes, which my son can recite, and that is, you need to learn how to lose as well as learn how to win. Have you got any thoughts on that? I think that's really true. And um, I'm glad to say, I think there are some great examples of people who, this is a great error in this context, is the idea that if you are a winner, if you are somebody who aims to reach your potential, then you have to, by definition, be a bad loser. Mm. That's completely wrong. Yeah. You can compete fiercely, but still lose with dignity mm. and courtesy and grace. You can also be fiercely in favour of wanting to win whilst respecting the rules mm. and respecting one's opponent. Mm. Um, I think that was a problem in the city in the 1980s. I think it came back before the financial crisis. The idea that if you're a real winner, you wanted to stiff your clients yeah. and consumers and you wanted to bend the rules to your advantage. That's not right. No. Capitalism only works if people are prepared to abide by the rules because the cost of oversight and uh, legal redress would be too much if everyone started cheating, if it was in their interest to do so. It's the same in sport. You know, Nicholas is a great example of somebody who was the best of all time. Mm. He won 18 major titles, as you know. Um, and yet he always played within the letter of the law and within the spirit of the game. Mm. Same is true of, in my view, most of the time it's true of, of Federer, of Nadal. I can't imagine Federer deliberately cheating. I mean, I may be naive. I just don't think, having met him and got to know him a little, he's the kind of person who would say, right, I could take drugs and get away with it, therefore I'm going to boost up with anabolic steroids. I think you would think, what's the point of winning in that way? Mm. And I've seen him lose a couple of times, and his graciousness in the press conference has been really striking. So I, I agree with you completely. I think we need a society where competition is part and parcel of humanity. It's one of the ways that we grow mm. as individuals and societies. But I think we need to really affirm with young people that competition can be intense and fierce, but also done in the right way. Mm. Yeah, it's, um, I was listening to an interview with Arianne Huffington, obviously of the Huffington Post, uh, and she sort of maintains that you can be successful and have a good, good career, but, you know, this language like crushing it and defeating and smashing our opponents, you know, it, it doesn't have to be win at all costs. It can be win and do good. It can be make money and make a difference. Yeah, and actually, you know, I think it's worth saying that... that that's one of the lessons that sport ought to provide, that it's very objective whether you've won or lost. Mm. I mean, there's not a lot you can do. If you've just been beaten in the table tennis game, you can't try and pretend you won it. Yeah. And therefore, it objectifies. It makes it, there's real clarity to winning and losing. And therefore, an opportunity to win 
with some level of humanity. You, when you're trying to beat somebody, you exploit their weaknesses. Mm. There's nothing wrong with that. That's what sport means. You play to the backhand if they've got a weak backhand. You drop shot if they're getting tired or whatever. Mm. Mm. But then afterwards, you shake hands. If you don't exploit their weaknesses, they'll never discover what the weaknesses are. Mm. That's not doing them a favour. It's undermining what competition ought to be about. It's the same in the market. If you have a company... Um, that sees an opportunity because a competitor isn't doing particularly well when it comes to customer service or their you know, offer, retail offering, and you go in and you exploit that weakness, you're serving the consumer. Mm. That's, how, that's, how, that's how economic growth happens. So I think competition within the letter and the spirit is a really powerful force for good. Mm. So um, I'd like to move on to talk about your book, Black Box thinking because I love the analogy you use with the black box it's funny because I saw that book for years and then when I listened to it I didn't really get black box black box in an airplane it's like of course one of the things that really held me back in my life was a huge fear and shame of looking stupid in front of people um, which meant that I would never try anything unless I was absolutely convinced I would get it right or win and absolutely feared any level of failure Mm. Um, and one thing that business has taught me 11 years into my business now and uh, is that you, you have to embrace failure in order to succeed mm. um, and, and you know maybe being successful ourselves and raising successful kids and things like that is maybe embracing failure making light of failure making humor of failure yep. um, and I know your book isn't specifically about that um, but do you want to talk us through the concept of black box thinking your book and and what you think about failure in our pursuit of success yeah, so fa- black ball singing was just a top line to show that aviation is very safe as a form of transportation for a simple but quite institutionally demanding reason, which is that every near miss and every accident is analysed to figure out what lessons can we learn, which then leads to a process of adaptation in terms of the protocols and the cockpit or the design of the engine or whatever else. So it's got this constant culture of continuous improvement. It's a very powerful thing. And I think often we find our failures difficult to investigate and interrogate because it often affects, you know, our egos get in the way. We like to think of ourselves as perfect. But there is a way of making failure particularly conducive to innovation. Obviously, in aviation, you don't want to make errors. Mm. The pilot doesn't want to try something new willy-nilly and crash the plane, (laughs) but it does need to learn from its historic accidents. But in the high-tech space, if you can fail fast, you can learn quickly. Mm. So um, it's very integrated into Silicon Valley that they will get software, even if it's not yet perfect, out into the market to find out where the bugs are. Mm. They'll get prototypes out early to uh, consumers to find out how the prototype can be improved. So it's called, you know, they call it failing fast. Mm. And so they're not fearful of failure. They see that as an opportunity mm. to innovate even more um, creatively. And I think um, there's good evidence that the highest performing tech companies are the ones that are the most adept at harnessing what, useful failures can tell them about how to improve what they do and when it comes to kids i think this is i think the fear of failure is massive Mm. you know this is the whole context of my new book for young people it's sort of black box thinking and bounce synthesized for young people Mm. it's what you were saying earlier about not wanting to take a risk in public Mm. because you're worried about humiliating yourself Mm. and all the things you want to do in your soul you don't dare to do exactly 
that's that's the absolute fundamental point. Um, and a good way, perhaps, to think about it is young people are surrounded by images of perfection, mm. often. In the false images. False often, images, yeah. airbrushed images yeah. mm. of bodily perfection, of lives that have no blemishes at all. And so it begins to, I think, make them think that we want to look perfect. We want to have the right number of likes on Twitter, the number of friends on Facebook. We don't want to take any risk that might lead to any sense of imperfection. But what does that mean? They're in their comfort zone. If you go and stand in front of a group of people and give a speech, that's a risk. You may forget your lines. One of them may not come out as well as you had hoped. Mm. But when you do it, it's a hugely liberating experience because you begin to find techniques to deal with the pressure. Yeah. And you find other ways to improve what you're doing. You, know, you go to work every day. That's a pressure. There's a risk. Mm. And there are certain things that we want to do, that we're keen to do, like a media interview. But there's a risk. But if you don't do it, you don't get a chance to put your view across. So I could have looked more perfect by not doing this interview. In my own mind, it would have been like, yeah, I've been watching the TV or I've been on my smartphone. I haven't had any evidence of imperfection in my life. But it would have meant that I'd miss this opportunity. By doing this, yeah, I'll make some mistakes. I'll stumble. But it means that I'm growing mm. as a person. Fear of failure is one of the most, I think, debilitating things for young people. The whole way, and our educators and older people, <laughs> and older people, absolutely. We need, and here's one other thing: in a fast-changing world, tech space, artificial intelligence, machine learning, kids will have 15 to 20 jobs in their professional lives. Most of them haven't yet been invented. In that kind of a world, a can-do attitude, a willingness to embrace the unknown to step into environments where we don't know everything, we're going to make mistakes, we're going to look imperfect. But my goodness, we need children to embrace looking silly from time to time, mm. getting things wrong. Yeah. Otherwise, they'll never grow. And that's, I guess, allowing them to make mistakes, giving them a safe environment where they don't feel exposed or risked You know, if, if they uh, make a mistake. Yep. Definitely not shaming them. Yep. All of those things. Mm. But for me, the most important thing is redefining failure. Mm. Yes. You know, I hope you and I are in a place now where we know that we make mistakes in public. The world will continue to turn. I'm smiling because I can think of some ridiculously stupid oh, things I've done. I, I look at my life and it's all the big dramatic mistakes that could have led, I mean, don't get me wrong, could have led to me turning my back on the world. Mm. I think my parents were important. They always said, try. You know, I remember fluffing my lines at a school play at nine and thinking I've let my dad down here. You know, all those people in the audience judging. My dad was had this big, beaming face. So that's great. Mm. Next time it'll be easier. And yeah. he was right. And, you know, falling apart at the Olympic Games in Sydney, that was a huge boost in so many different ways. And, you know, most of the, you know, I remember talking to Branson. I mean, I could say, say any successful person, but mm. Richard Branson, he said his biggest advantage in life was just not being afraid of failure. Mm. He's bankrupted companies. That's yeah. some massive PR disasters, huge ones. Mm. But you know what? He's learned from every one. And he goes out there and gives it a go. And a mm. lot of people, curse of perfectionism. You get kids who are at home looking perfect, but never growing. Mm. And if someone's really struggling with that, I know you've said that there's a fundamental belief in that failure equals success rather than failure doesn't equal success. But I know there are so many people who struggle with the mindset of it, the fear, maybe how they've been raised. Yeah. Is there anything, 
psychologically, you know, from a mindset perspective, yeah. people can do. Yeah, I mean, so in in the psychological literature, there's at least three things that can be done. One, sort of alluded to it already, it's a good idea to think of success as a journey. That helps you to see the difficulties as stepping stones rather than as indictments. It's not a bad idea when interacting with kids to praise them often for mm. the effort or the process rather than for talent or genius. We'll go into that in more yeah. detail. Um, also, in education, it's very easy for a you know, young person in a maths lesson or geography or English or science or whatever, somebody else is solving the algebra or Pythagoras or the sun quicker than they are. How easy for them to say, oh, my goodness, they've got a maths brain and I haven't. Mm. And therefore, what's the point? If I haven't got the right kind of brain, I'm screwed. Mm. Can you see how that would lead them to disengage from the lesson? Yeah. Why, why bother if it's futile? If, on the other hand, they think, you know what? If I engage with maths, I can grow my brain. You know, thinking of the brain as adaptable, which it is, by the way. Mm. You know, the, the brain is a hugely plastic um, part of the body. Uh, London black cab drivers, the area of the brain involved in spatial navigation, the posterior hippocampus is huge, but it grows with time on Mine the job. Mine be absolutely tiny. <laughs> <laughs> so, so as we do things, the cortical mapping, so if it, you know, and then a child sees someone do something well in maths, they think, ah, oh, if I want to do that, I need to practice a bit more. You know, I was rubbish at maths, but I got the mindset right, and eventually I did okay. You know, yeah. I'm not saying I, I will win a Nobel Prize, but I got an A-level. Mm. And, and there's powerful evidence that kids in the right mindset become numerate. They become literate. They just reach their potential because they're not always thinking, oh, my God, I haven't got that particular gift. Mm. Yeah. So it comes back to your myth of talent right. uh, thesis, I guess. It does. Um, I think also something that I've learned along the way is that um, failure equals success. And I think we perceive that perfection equals success. But actually, if you look at a lot of things, like heavy metal is a detuned guitar, and someone at some stage must have tuned their guitar wrong and started strumming. That Nirvana song, Smells Like Teen Spirit, is completely out of tune. And it's one of the most famous songs. The post-it note didn't work. It was a failed glue. Penicillin was, a, you know, an accidental failed experiment. And I think that when you track back through a lot of success, it's a series of failures and aha moments of failures where maybe people were going down that road and realised that, that they, I'm sure spin at some times in tennis was, was, it couldn't have been an intentional thing. Someone discovered it. And, you know, I think that in so much success is actually the failure was the pivot to the success. Yeah, yeah, and I think it has two sort of independent meanings. I mean, so you're, I couldn't agree more with that, that when we fail, it's often a violation of expectation. You know, nobody, to go back to the black box metaphor, no one gets on an aeroplane expecting it to crash. Mm. When it does crash, it shows that something within our assumptions was flawed. Therefore, it's very rich in learning opportunities. But I think you're also right. Often there can be an accident like the discovery of penicillin. It's sort of a similar thing conceptually. And that turns out to be very significant in the history of innovation. Mm. That some fundamental error. And the interesting thing is often they look at it and think, well, it's not actually a violation of expectation. The experiment must have been contaminated in some way. Mm. Because it is quite difficult to get out of 
a particular category of thinking, if that makes sense, sort of a silo of thinking. It's only when we get hit by, oh my goodness, we didn't expect that to happen, mm. that we begin to change our fundamental assumptions. Um, and this idea of serendipity, that these serendipitous mistakes can be really important, it's our ability to see those failures for what they are that enables us to, to, to innovate mm. in, a, in, a, in a more powerful way. So therefore, maybe completely redefining failure as not failure. In the right context. So I think we definitely want to identify a failure to win a tennis match as, you know what, I lost. Let's not pretend that I won. That was a defeat. Mm. Give me a prize and I'm never going to think of redressing my weaknesses because I got exactly the same as the winner. Mm. Uh, Or a company that is constantly subsidised is never going to improve or innovate because their failures are being defined as, well, actually, it was fine, you won. So I think we need to, we need to forensically confront our failures that are stepping stones to improve what we do. Yeah. And, we, and, and also it's worth saying that we don't want to take undue risks. So I meant, I meant that when I said that, you know, a pilot who, oh, why don't I try this? <laughs> you know, fail fast today. You know, yeah. You're going to kill or a lot a of people. Or anything right. like that, yeah. so, so you want to fail. You know, the context is really, really mm. important. Um, so a company that has an idea that maybe we need to change something in this particular way, it's not a bad idea to test it in a pilot scheme. Mm. So if you do fail, the cost is small yeah. and you learn the lessons. Mm. Why roll it out across the entire business? Mm. So I think there are sophisticated ways that we can leverage the power of failure whilst minimising the cost. Mm. You've got an amazing story. And um, something I've been inspired by your story is, and I am by many people like Arnold Schwarzenegger and people like that, is success in multiple disciplines. And I think there's a part of me that failed in multiple disciplines that's been allured to people who are successful in multiple disciplines. First at Oxford, you know, huge author, table tennis champion, you know, all the articles you write for the mainstream media, a very successful podcast. How have you managed to transcend success in one area and and almost, because you must have some kind of system for being successful in multiple areas? Well, first of all, I think that's too kind. But it, it, <laughs> it's I, true. I, I'll tell you what, it, it, this is interesting. This is, this, this is interesting. I, I think, <laughs> okay, so first of all, I wasn't the greatest table tennis player. I'm not the greatest public speaker. We don't have the greatest podcast. You know? So I wanted to say that. But, but it's, 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 I do look back on it with, with great interest because I meant what I said. Table tennis, I was rubbish at the beginning. I played my backhand. In a really weird way, I like, hit it with the forehand, and I was definitely not in the top four or five at my primary school, mm. but ended up you know, amongst the best players in the world. Had, it's a combination of opportunity. Mm-hmm. Got to have opportunity. A bit of luck, yeah. right? I had the coach, had that club to practice at. But well, we can reverse engineer that. Though, yeah, can't true. We? That's yeah. true. That's true. That's mm. true. Um, but I didn't reverse. It just was there for yeah. me. So I was a beneficiary of but plus passionate practice Mm. so public speaking i know you do a lot of it Mm. i do a lot of public speaking as a teen i couldn't do i couldn't stand in front of a room of people without blushing and becoming very self-conscious but i realized that being able to speak in public was a useful skill and presumably a masterable skill Mm. so i went to a club called toastmasters and it's not far from here it's in Mm. twickenham just around the corner from where we are now at my home in richmond And a group of people would get together in a room, 
about 20 of us. You know, some of them worked in banks, some were housewives, a few retired people. They wanted to improve their social skills. So you go there and you give a set speech and then you have something called table topics where you have to go to the front and they just give you a topic that you have to instantly talk for two minutes. Which is making a lot of people scared right now. Oh my <laughs> goodness, imagine how difficult that is. Mm. Spontaneous speech on a subject you haven't even seen. Yeah. We look silly most of the time. Mm. But over time, I was there for years, practicing. Loved mm. it, by the way, passionate mm. practice, really enjoyed it, nice people. Yeah. Um, so when I, I, I remember giving a speech the other day and somebody came in, and it was without notes, um, about 45 minutes, and somebody says, you're very talented at this. I said, honestly, it's not even, it's not even an iota of talent in mm. my ability to speak. I've just done tons of practice. And I try to encourage people. And I've got people who have started going to Toastmasters and other speaking clubs who are just growing. Mm. So it's the same with, with virtually anything that I've done. Um, that, that commitment to practice, to reflect on what could I do differently or better, that process, coupled with the luck to have had the opportunities to, to, to do podcasts and a column at the Times. Um, so I wouldn't say I was incredibly successful, but the success that I have had has just been this very straightforward process mm. And it, um, it, it genuinely amazes me that people say, no, 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 no. It's all about talent. You've got to have it. Mm. My goodness, it's just not true. Well, no one could even speak when they were born. Right. So how could we say genetic? If someone to look at the chromosomes, yeah. the DNA code, where does it say public speaker? Right. Author, <laughs> golfer. And, 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 no. If a doctor can show me that, then yeah. I'll change my mind. It, it's unbelievable. I mean, to take the podcast that we do, Robbie Savage, Freddie Flintoff and myself, you know, we started that. The pilot was absolutely terrible. I don't think it was ever broadcast. You know, but Robbie in particular has got this great mindset. He reads every review on iTunes. He looks at all the feedback on Twitter. He talks to the producer. You probably do the same to mm. get feed. You know, and because we constantly get this feedback and thinking what could we do differently and better, yeah. I'm not saying the podcast is a great podcast, but we've improved it immeasurably to compare to what it would have been. Mm. And so I, I just think that is a process you're absolutely right i mean it explains so much in the world this process of learning and adapting and 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 doing it in a passionate way they're, they're great ingredients for, mm. for any young person but any older person yeah. too and i think if you have that mindset that anything that you do is learnable rather than genetic right then you can reinvent your career as many times as you like uh, yeah you have to go back to the beginning yeah um, and okay, there are physical limitations because everyone always says, "Well, if you're five foot and you can't play basketball." That's true. Um, but there is some. That's short, true. Yeah. yeah. So, but that's really important because people talk about the anatomical differences, but the brain, the software mm. that we use to make sense of the world, that's downloadable through mm. practice. The other thing is initiative. I mean, it's very. I mean, it's almost silly to bring it in as an independent concept because it's so related to what we've been saying already. But Brett, there's another thing Branson talked about, which he's right. I think it's really, really important. Initiative is really important. Being proactive. Mm. He was on a flight to the Virgin Islands, and he got he stopped in Miami or somewhere en route. The onward flight was cancelled. And a lot of people said, well, in fact, every other passenger said, well, we're obviously screwed. Branson thought, is there some other way of getting there? So he phoned up a charter company and said, how much would it cost to charter a private jet? to sit 50 passengers. <clears throat> they gave him a price, and he divided it by the number of passengers sitting in the airport who had to wait for it. And he wrote up on a blackboard, Virgin Airways, first flight, you know, $200. And he went round, and everyone said, yeah, we'd love to if we mm. can save a 
this all this wasted time. And that was the first flight. He had the initiative to make that call, to go and talk to the other passengers. There's often what, what you might call a psychological distance between the way the world is now and the way it could be if you were to act in a way to take it to that mm. new place. So the way the world was, cancelled flight. The, world, the, way, the way the world could be is hire a new flight and get there early. Mm. I think people with initiative shrink that psychological distance. Right. It's not like, oh, I could never do that. You know, sometimes I think initiative is so low in people. Going out and posting a letter can be difficult. Mm. Oh, I've got to leave the house. I've got to put my shoes on. You know, I might have to drive the car in park. That's a real hassle. But I think for people with initiative, they shrink that distance. Mm. They just see the destination very clearly and what they need to do to get there. So it doesn't become the nightmare that it might otherwise be. And I think in a, in a rapidly changing complex world, that is, is really, really important. Mm. And I think it's important to add that the definition of, say, initiative or creativity is a fully human trait that any human being mm. can do. Because I think a lot of people even write themselves off, well, I'm not creative, I can't solve any problems. That's not my side of oh, the brain. You yeah, know, all these identities right. that yeah. people put on themselves. Oh, that's right. That's exactly right. I mean, that, that is, is at the absolute essence of this, that we label ourselves on the basis of one difficulty. Mm. Oh, I wasn't particularly good at maths in that lesson. Therefore, I'm obviously not cut out for it. And I have, I'm not. I haven't really got the personality to 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 speak in public. I haven't really got the get up and go to exercise initiative. That's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm -hmm. The evidence is overwhelming. Great psychologist Michael Fraser. He did some work with entrepreneurs in Africa. He's done it with with companies in Germany, in all sorts of different parts of the world with a bit of initiative training. Two days, and entrepreneurs were doubling their profits. It was published in Science magazine. Um, so they had education for 18 years. They're all bright entrepreneurs, but they didn't quite have the initiative. Mm. They couldn't ignite their ideas. They couldn't take a concept from a dormant one in the brain to a living, breathing reality. Training and self-perception that mm. I can exercise initiative that's what gets you out of the door. And, it, and, and, and the other thing I think is worth saying is life is much more enjoyable mm. when you actually act on the things you want to do rather than just them sitting inside your brain. Mm. What about being present? Um, because I sometimes wonder if I've had so many opportunities in my life, but I've just been so in the past focused, in the future focused, yep. anxiety, yep. worry in the future, guilt, regret in the past. Um, and I wonder if just being present in the moment to be able to see the post-it note falling off the wall or to actually look at the mould or whatever it was in the Petri dish, yeah. would there be an argument that being present can also be creative and solve problems? There is good evidence for that. And I think I need to think more about being in the present. It's, mm. you know, I'm often um, thinking about the future, where one can get to, and thinking about how to get there. Um, and I think maybe I do need to, you know, as a dad, has got two young kids, four and five, I think I need to, I need more of that. Mm. Um, the evidence is really strong, isn't yeah. it, on, on how inspiration and also happiness can mm. come from every now and again, retreating into the present and enjoying what one has got. Mm. I think I need to do a lot more of that. Yeah, I feel like I do because some of my best ideas and then researching other people's ideas it's almost like, you know, it's famously come in the shower or the bath or whatever, don't they? And yeah, I they actually do. think what I think what's going on there, and this there's definitely a book in this somewhere, is 
once the brain is cleared of all noise. A friend of mine said to me, he's also an author, he says, um, being creative and writing is not about filling your brain with ideas, it's about emptying it of noise. I think that's true. I mean, it's interesting, this, that you were saying earlier about innovation often arising from failure. It also often arises from connecting to disparate ideas. Hybridizing. Right. Mm. So sort of some cross-germination. So history of innovation from Google's PageRank algorithm to the printing press to the McLaren buggy. It's about taking two seemingly different ideas. Suitcase and wheels. Right. Suitcase and wheels. Why why didn't we think of that before? By the way, it took, you know, if you look go back into ancient civilization, you know, some of the Early tribes had t- wheels on toys, right. but didn't integrate it in the mm. idea of transporting food or wheat or whatever. Mm. So often it is quite difficult to break down these silos. Mm. You know, wheels are for cars, but not suitcases. Oh, but hang on, let's bring them together. I think when we switch off, what's happening often is our subconscious is given permission to break through rationality and to start trialing combinations that we wouldn't typically think about Mm. and suddenly you get that eureka moment Mm. switching off in that sense is an opportunity for the machinery of our subconscious to really work on bringing ideas from completely different parts of our conceptual scheme together bang Mm. and i think that's another exactly as you say it's another reason why why that mindfulness can be very very powerful and it can be you you can reverse engineer it Mm. I, I could stay here all day, but I don't want to overstay my welcome. Um, so your latest book, I'd love to hear about it. So You Are Awesome is for young people. I thought you were talking well, to me. Yeah, well, then, yeah, you are. Cut end of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, it's for young people. So it's, it's really taking the, everything we've been talking about today and giving, you know, the amount of adults who said to me, yeah, this has really helped me, but I want my youngsters really fearful of failure and my little girl is worried about looking less than perfect mm. and... I wanted to write a book in the language of young people, 9 to 14, so that they can take these lessons and live a fuller life. Yeah. So there's a lot of science, a lot of storytelling. There's some great, a wonderful illustrator. And I think it, you know, I really hope that it will, it will, you know, you said that Bounce had an impact on you, which is the best thing you can hear as an author. I really hope that it will have a strong impact on young people. Mm. So this podcast is called The Disruptive Entrepreneur. Uh, and that seems to mean different things to every guest I interview. What does the word disruptive mean to you? Well, I think of uh, the Schumpeter quote that markets are about creative disruption. Or was it? No, he actually, he said creative destruction. So let me start that again. Disruption, I think of the continuous alteration to the status quo. In other words, growth. Mm. And is that also important? Of the self, as well as it's even I think even more important than self. Yeah. You know, how do we? You know, even if you think of muscles, when we work out, the reason that muscles grow is because they're disrupted and they then have to rebuild. Mm. And I think that's what happens in our own personal lives. Mm. We get disrupted. There are difficulties, like the kids trying. The kid, <laughs> my, my daughter at the moment crying because <laughs> she wants to have a chat. Which, uh, um, and I think that's that's a powerful force. Let's embrace the disruption. Mm. Okay, so could we do a really quick fire round of three or four really quick questions, yep. and then we'll um, uh, ask where you'd like to send everyone who's listening. So, best advice you've ever been given? Yeah, that that advice from my dad after fluffing my line. What was it? Um, <laughs> <laughs> it was something like. 
yeah, you failed, but it's how you respond to failure that matters most. Mm. Worst advice you've ever been given? The worst advice, okay, so just before I played the Olympic final in Sydney, my coach, lovely guy, was trying to motivate <laughs> me, but he said, what happens over the course of the next 45 minutes will determine whether the last four years were a waste of time or not. Wow. So thankfully you just yeah. let that... I was like, gosh, yeah, no cheers, idea. mate. Yeah. Okay, so uh, where can we follow you? Where would you like us to go? Oh, do have a look at my new book, You Are Awesome, Parents and Kids. Um, that's on Amazon, and uh, my Twitter page is at Matthew Side. Okay, and is there, finally, anything you strongly believe in the world that you'd like to change, that's wrong in the world or a difference you want to make? I think, I think our education, yeah, lots of things. I think our education system is good. I think our teachers are passionate and vocational. I think we need to focus a bit more, not just on learning concepts, that we can regurgitate like chemical formulae, mm. but also learning the skills like initiative, like mindset that are going to be so important when we leave school and hit the real world. Matthew, thank you very much. Hey, pleasure. Thanks for having thank me. You.